I'm weary. I'm weary of battling sin. I'm weary of the temptation. Every, every temptation I face seems like one more failed attempt to feel better in a way other than the way God intended. I keep going back, though. I'm weary of that. I'm weary of the breakdown of my body. And I'm only talking about normal aging, not what many of you have endured and are enduring. I'm weary of the fighting, the injustice, the hatred in our society. I'm weary of the selfishness of our culture. I'm weary of the immorality, the corruption of our institutions. I'm weary of death. I'm weary of going to funerals. I'm weary of leading them. I'm weary of losing loved ones that never goes away. I know that Jesus knows all of that. The prophet uh, said in Isaiah 53 that Jesus was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. We read in the New Testament in Hebrews that, speaking of Jesus, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are and yet without sin. And Jesus leveraged his humanity to make a way for the shattered creation to be renewed and for sinful humanity to be redeemed. And that's what we're going to see in Revelation 21 today when we see the dwelling place of God, that it is finally with us, with humanity. And in fact, that is our deepest longing. A reconciled relationship with God in a renewed heaven and a renewed earth. And we may not think of it this way, but whether we realize it or not, every pursuit, like everything you've been chasing over the last seven days, every pursuit, oh, after, is, is about finding fulfillment and satisfaction and happiness. That's what you spent the last seven days doing. But it, it eludes us. And in fact, we're going to repeat the cycle in the next seven days. It eludes us because fulfillment and satisfaction and happiness are things that can only be found in eternal proximity to God. Again, that's what we see in this passage. One of the most amazing passages in all Scripture. Revelation 21, I'll read the first eight verses. This is the Apostle John receiving this vision, as he has been throughout the book. And John says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. 
And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Whether I realize it or not, the deepest longing of my heart is to be with God. And we're going to look at seven exchanges as we examine these eight verses, seven exchanges that we need to do in response to this, seven exchanges where we're going to give up something inferior for something eternal and superior. It comes from God, an eternal gift from God. So first, I'm exchanging the old for the new. Now, this is really a general statement that hangs over all that we'll see here. John says here in verse 1 that he saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth. That's where we're living right now, the first earth. We look up at the first heaven. This is creation OG, the original, what God created, what we currently are living on. But as John sees it here, there's a new heaven, a new earth for what we're living on right now, for John in this vision has passed away. Now this is important. There's a new heaven and a new earth coming. So any vision, any idea that you have that eternity, if you're a Christian, that eternity is spent laying on a cloud, strumming a harp, like that vision, get that out of your mind, unbiblical, we're going to be living on earth. We're going to be living in this renovated creation. This is what God always intended for us. A return to God's original intention, but one so radically altered from what we have known that he says here, the sea was no more. Now, the sea in Revelation gets a bad rap. Every time we see a, a vision of the sea, there's evil coming out of it. And so in some respect, where you see the sea eradicated, this is God saying to John and to us, he's just saying, I'm, I'm wiping out evil. That's not going to be a thing anymore. But in some sense, there also will be no sea. We can't even fathom of a world. Imagine a world with no oceans, no seas. There will be water, but no oceans, no seas. 
so hard for us to understand. This is so radically different. And the point, of course, and we've been saying this throughout Revelation, if you've been tracking through this entire series, you know this to be true, that, it's, that we're not getting caught up in the details of all of this, but we're appreciating in this moment especially the fact that this is all new, the newness of all things and what God is going to recreate and how different it is. This is the point. It's how different it is from what we're currently experiencing. This past Thursday, um, I had the privilege of being up at RVH and, and visiting one of the newest members of our church. I got to hold a newborn. She, she was about, um, I don't know, eight, nine, maybe 10 hours old um, at this point, and uh, barely five pounds, just over five pounds, uh, but her sister made up the other four and a half pounds. So she's one of two, and uh, her sister was spending a little bit of extra time in the, in the NICU. But uh, this is Leah, and she's so new, and yet she's already imperfect. Oh, no, 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 I know. All the, all the women here are like, look at her. She's so perfect. All the men are going, looks like every other baby I've ever seen. But I vetted this past her mom and dad, and, and they agree. She's already imperfect. And beyond that, she has been born into a world that is quite imperfect, broken, decaying, and corrupt. And that is the old order of things that we currently live in, the old order that God promises to make new. In fact, Paul kind of writing a commentary on all of this in Romans chapter 8, and I'm just going to skim through some verses here, but if you want to jot it down, Romans 8, 19 through 22, he says, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. The creation, Paul says, was subjected to futility and that it's waiting to be set free from its bondage to corruption, waiting to obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. He makes the comment, and tell me if this doesn't describe your last seven days, okay? Just as I read it, just tell me that you do not also identify with the earth in this that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Did you groan at all this past week? Anybody groan? Everybody, anybody have something in your life where you're going, Ugh. And the rest of you are lying. <laughs> but it's not just about the earth, because that little precious child, Leah and her sister, listen, they need to be redeemed. And this awesome renewing of the earth mirrors what's happening in those who have faith in Christ. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. And the old has passed away and behold, the new has come. And God has given us a down payment on that. Ephesians 1.14 tells us that the Holy Spirit is a down payment or a guarantee of this promise of God to renew all things. While we await our redemption, either in death, by our own death, or the redemption that comes at the coming of Jesus Christ. Ultimately, the redemption that comes in this very moment that's described here. And listen, the first exchange we need to do 
is to exchange the old for the new. And secondly, estrangement for intimacy. This is our starting point. This is, this is what I was referencing with respect to this little child who is just born. Our starting point or our natural state is that all human beings are estranged from God. We're all sinners. The goal then, the goal is to have our relationship with God normalized or reconciled. So even that beautiful little child, Leah, will in very short order, and every parent knows this, in very short order that little child will manifest the sin nature. I'm not wrong about that, am I, parents? Children very quickly begin to show their sinful colors. And that's what we're talking about here, is that that's our starting point. In fact, George Eldon Ladd said this, direct unmarred fellowship between God and his people is the goal of all redemption because we're estranged from him. This, in fact, what we're reading here in Revelation 21, this is the culmination of every covenant that God made with humanity and every covenant that humanity broke throughout all of history. And as a side note to all of this, by the way, we were never counting on ourselves to be able to fulfill those covenants. We might have had some dream that we could, but we were never deluded into thinking that we could actually live up to the covenants that God made with us. It had to be God who kept covenant. It had to be God who repaired the damage that we had done. The estrangement is our doing. The intimacy that God gives us in the end that's his doing. And when I wrote that sentence, I immediately thought about a quote from Jonathan Edwards, that just a famous quote that he made about this, where he said, you contribute nothing to your salvation but the sin that made it necessary. Don't buy, don't buy what this world is selling. This world's telling you that you're moral creatures. This world tells you that everybody has good in them. You're basically good people. Don't buy that line. Humanity left to itself always goes Lord of the Flies. We're estranged from God. We need to be reconciled. So John says here, verse 2, I saw the holy city, the, the sanctified city, the, the perfect city, the sinless city, the city set apart for God. That's what holy means. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. We've seen that imagery of bride and bridegroom already in the book of Revelation and elsewhere in the scripture. And this is the most lavish wedding of all time with the most beautiful bride and the most handsome and glorious groom of all time. Your wedding doesn't even come close even if you were married in the 80s with all the hair and the, and the shoulder pads and the lace. I was married in the 80s. <laughs> this, is, this blows any wedding that's ever been had away. And then he says, verse three, 
I heard a loud voice. This is an authoritative voice coming from the throne of God, and it's pronouncing this amazing, long-awaited, long-anticipated message. Behold, behold, the dwelling place of God is with men. We had that before. We lost it. We had it. Adam and Eve walked in the garden with God and spoke to him face to face, and they lost it. And we were estranged from him. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with men. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And it's like he's repeating the same theme over and over again for emphasis. He wants us to see how awesome this is going to be and how much we long to be in God's proximity, to have intimacy with him. We're going to see this in more detail in the next half, in the second half of chapter 21 as we look at the New Jerusalem in more detail. But listen, that, that dissonance that we feel inside of us The dissonance that you feel, the, the feeling like on a daily basis that something isn't quite right. This is it. It's your estrangement from the creator. It's, it's, that, it's that feeling that you have that, that things are just out of sync with God and, and with the world around you. And sometimes even feeling like you're out of sync with yourself. And that should be obvious to the unbeliever. If you don't have Christ, you should really be feeling that. As a believer, you might be mitigating some of that by understanding the truths of God's word. But even as a believer, I'm going to tell you this. The longer you walk with Jesus, I'm, I'm 40 years walking with Jesus. The longer you walk with Jesus, the irony of this is, the closer you get to him, the further away you feel because you understand how big the chasm is. You understand the weight of your own sin. You become more acutely aware of how awesome and holy he is and more acutely aware of how sinful you are. In other words, you feel the reality of the estrangement more and more the more you walk with him and the longer, uh, the more you understand, the longer you spend with him. This is, this is the growing ache that the mature follower of Christ feels an ache to be with him. You know that, that you've only been granted a taste. We're enjoying a tasting menu of the Lord. But the feast awaits. We can't wait to get to the marriage supper of the Lamb to sit at the table with him and to feast on all that he has for us. So exchange your estrangement from God for intimacy with him. He offers that. And, and exchange your brokenness for wholeness. Exchange your brokenness for wholeness. The, the, the verse is this verse, verse 4. It's like it overwhelms me every time I read it. That's natural. Because in fact, Grant Osborne makes, makes the point. He says, the whole of the Bible points to this moment. Everything points to verse 4. From the, from the first verse of the Old Testament all the way through, through the Gospels, through Acts, through the letters, all the way down to this moment in Revelation 21, 4. 
all of the Bible points to what happens right here. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things. Like all those things I said I was weary of in the introduction. The, the death and the pain that are spoken of here. All of these things have passed away. I want you to try to imagine that for a moment. I want you to try to imagine life without tears. It's so hard for us. We've heard this promise before. In fact, we got a preview of it in, in chapter 7. And uh, this is what we heard, for, and this is long before. There was so much more that had to happen before it would be fulfilled, but God threw this in. For the Lamb in the, midst is, in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and He will guide them to springs of living water. This is Revelation 7, 17. And God will wipe every tear from their eyes. The prophecy actually was spoken first uh, in Isaiah chapter 25, and I want to read this to you. The prophet records this, he will swallow up death forever and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. What a promise. Every tear will be wiped away from our eyes. If you're a fan of J.R.L. Tolkien, he understood this. In his great trilogy, The Lord of the Rings, in a conversation between Sam and Gandalf in The Return of the King, we read this, but Sam lay back, Tolkien writes, but Sam lay back and stared with open mouth. And for a moment, between bewilderment and great joy, he could not answer. At last he gasped, Gandalf, I thought you were dead, but then I thought I was dead myself. And then Sam asked the wizard this question. Is everything sad going to come untrue? Everything that is wrong in the world, everything that is broken, all of the sorrow, all of the loss that you have suffered, all the separation that has happened to you, all the injustice you have faced, the death you have faced, the tears you have shed, all of it is going to come untrue because God has promised by His Word. All the sadness that we face is the result of the void created, that we created. It's emptiness of our own design. Tears the tears that God will wipe away right now, those tears convey without words that something is missing in our lives. That we are and life is broken. And what God offers in place of that is wholeness. 
That is to say, what God offers is that nothing at all is missing in our lives. God dabs away the tears while our eyes are closed and he ushers us into a place where everything that was broken is whole again, where everything that was sad is untrue. It follows then that I can make this next exchange, that I would exchange despair for hope, knowing that I'm going to exchange despair for hope. God says in verse 5, behold, I'm making all things new. And he told John, write this down. Just as he's been saying to John all the way along, I'm giving you these visions, I'm giving you these revelations, and I want you to write them down in this book, and then I want you to give that to the churches. Behold, I'm making everything new. Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. The world is peddling so much to us that is not trustworthy and not true. And God tells us we have something to go to that the world is not offering you. You can count on this. Lad said, the future is not uncertain for those who trust God. Do you trust him? Do you trust the word that he's given to us? If you do, your future is not uncertain. And the certainty is there because God said, write this down. We have this word in our hands, which testifies to all that Jesus Christ has done. It is in his word that we read of his incarnation, Christ made flesh. We read of his life and ministry and the miracles that he did. It's in this book that we read of, of his arrest and his, the betrayal and his crucifixion on the cross. We read of his glorious resurrection. We read of his ascension to heaven and we read the promise of his return. These words are trustworthy and true. In fact, in this scripture, we read Isaiah 53, 5, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. 600 years, written 600 years before he was crucified. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Jesus is the only hope that transcends the hopelessness and despair of this world. The world offers nothing except fleeting moments of optimism. That's the best the world can give us. Band-aid solutions for the devastating trauma of sin and death. What God offers instead, it's not optimism, it's not positive thinking. What God offers instead is a reversal. He's going to change everything. He's going to give us back what we as humanity had and what we lost. Dane Ortland's book, Gentle and Lowly, is one of the most impactful books I've ever read. It needs to be on your reading list. 
Here's what Dane Ortland said, interacting with some material, citing uh, Jürgen Moltmann. Jesus Christ's earthly ministry was one of giving back to undeserving sinners their humanity. We tend to think of the miracles of the Gospels as interruptions in the natural order. Yet miracles are not an interruption of the natural order, but the restoration of the natural order. We're so used to a fallen world that sickness, disease, pain, and death seem natural. In fact, they are the interruption. That's the, that's the reversal that God wants to do in our lives. We despair of these things. And we've attached them so closely to us because they're so much a part of our lives. And God says, I want to give you hope through all of that. Make the exchange. Here's another. See this one next. I want to exchange want want for satisfaction. Psalm 23, verse 1, one of the most well-known scriptures. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not, I shall not want. The CSB, I have everything I need. We have this in our mind, but this is really, we, we hear this line, and, and this is the exchange of want for being fully satisfied. But when we say this in Psalm 23, when we say it, we all kind of understand we're never actually going to get to that place where we say, I have everything I need. That's just not the way we are. So we say Psalm 23 in more of an aspirational way. This is what we hope to be. This is what we hope to achieve. But we know that maybe on this side of eternity, we're never really going to get there because we're always going to have these needs, always have these wants in our lives. And again, this is the call for an exchange. I want to exchange wanting things all the time for actually being satisfied. Verse 6, he goes on, he says, and he said to me, mark this, mark this right here in your Bibles, mark this down, it is done. God says to John, it is done. This made me think of it is finished. Jesus on the cross in the moment before he passed, he had taken all of our sin on himself. He had defeated death on the cross. And he said, it is finished, paid in full. And I read this and I go, this sounds so familiar. It is done. And what God is saying to John is all the prophecies, all the vision, all these apocalyptic realities that I've shown you in Revelation are completed and done. And, and it happened, by the way, on the basis that he is, he says right here, that he's the Alpha and the Omega. That's the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. He says, I'm, I'm the beginning and the end. He interprets Alpha and Omega. I'm the beginning and the end. I, I made all of this. I started it. I created it all. I'm going to be the one who brings it to a consummation and ends it all. And I'm also in charge of everything in between those two things. I'm sovereign over all of it. I'm the Alpha and the Omega. I'm the beginning and the end. I'm sovereign over all of it. I made a promise. I will fulfill it. God is the only one who can truly satisfy because he is the only one who knows what we were created for. He's the only one who knows what can truly satisfy us. We have no idea. So he says, 
to the thirsty. I will give from the spring of the water of life. Now, he's not talking about a physical beverage, an actual beverage, but spiritual thirst being quenched forever. Now, you really can't hear this imagery and not think immediately of John chapter 4 and Jesus in Samaria, and he goes to that well, and there's a woman there who's drawing water. He has a conversation with her about this very thing. He wants a drink. She's drawing water. He's parched. He's hot. She's drawing water for her own needs. But then Jesus transcends that to say that, that he can give her a drink that, she, that she'd never be thirsty again. And she's like, you don't even have a pail to put in the, in the well. He says, you don't understand. This is John 4, 13 and 14. He says, everyone who drinks of this water. Now, water's boring. I get it. I mean, it's, it's important. Don't get me wrong. Like it's, like, it's important for life. It's like air and water, one and two, right? You guys out there? Okay. All right. Just checking. So, like, think of your favorite beverage. Like, like, like think of a favorite beverage, like lemonade or iced tea, or how many iced coffee people, like, you're excited for iced coffee season, like, or, or cold beer. I know you're out there. That's fine. <laughs> I know you're out there. Ice cold Coke, whatever it happens to be. Like, just think of your favorite beverage. Whoever drinks of this ice cold, refreshing beverage will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never thirst, never thirst again. Can you imagine being in a place where you never thirst again? You're never feeling that want, but you're perfectly satisfied. Again, we're not talking about physical stuff here. The water that I give him, Jesus says, will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The point here is really simple. We shouldn't miss it at all. It's that nothing in this life, even the good things, and this is about a good thing. Again, this is water. Water is essential for life. We're talking about an amazing gift that God has given to us in cold, refreshing water or boiling it for coffee. Either way, it's a wonderful gift. It's something amazing that he gives to us. So this is good things. This is the want of good things that don't satisfy us. This isn't about sin in our lives. Nothing in this life, even good things, can satisfy the spiritual thirst we have. But but we still go after these things. You and I are going to go after them this week. If you try to find satisfaction in sex, which is a good gift from God, even within the confines that God has established for sex, you will not find ultimate satisfaction. You're always going to want more. You're not going to find it in trying to figure out your sexuality. You're not going to find it in trying to figure out your gender identity. You're not going to find it in relationships. Even the best relationships we have, the closest friendships, even in marriage, if you have have the best marriage around, you're not going to be satisfied in it. It's not going to be enough. 
having children, or better yet, having grandchildren. I mean, children are great. Don't get me wrong. Grandchildren are amazing. But even the grandchildren, listen, I'm just telling you, it's not enough. Education, career, wealth, comfort, even in charitable efforts. I feel so good when I'm helping people. It's not enough. You're always going to be left wanting because only Jesus can satisfy that thirst. And he offers us to drink. Look at the last two words in verse 6. He offers us to drink without payment. Why? Well, the hymn writer told us, Jesus paid it all. Jesus paid it all. All right, a couple more exchanges. I also exchange confusion, confusion for identity. Verse 7, the one who conquers, that's a familiar word. We've seen this in Revelation. The one who conquers will have this heritage. And I will be his God and he will be my son. That's a repeat. Back in, in chapters two and three, we had those seven letters to seven churches and seven times Jesus said to those churches, to the one who conquers, to the one who conquers, to the one who conquers, to the one who conquers. Over and over again, seven times he said that phrase, to the one who conquers. And once again, listen, again, this is message 30 in the book of Revelation. And we have discovered, haven't we? We have discovered the book of Revelation is, is not what some of you expected it to be. It is not a book predicting the future. And if you were really, really jazzed about that, you would have left here long ago and gone to find a preacher who will give you that kind of preaching in Revelation. That is not what Revelation is about. Revelation is not about predicting the future. Revelation is about enduring and overcoming and conquering in the midst of a world that is unraveling. That is the book of Revelation. That is why it is given to us. Revelation is about giving me what I need to survive spiritually, even while my body and this creation are wasting away. Revelation calls us to unwavering devotion to God in the face of withering persecution and crushing personal trials. That's the book of Revelation. So I can survive anything that comes my way because as a follower of Christ, as someone who is blood-bought by Jesus, I, listen, listen to this, I know who I am, I know where I'm going, and I know why I'm here. I'm not wondering about any of those things. I've locked all of that down. And I claimed this identity at the very moment that I pledged my life to Christ when he cleansed my sins and I exercised faith in the Savior. And I left behind in that moment all the confusion that people struggle with around matters of identity. You are not, I, said, I feel like I said this a couple of weeks ago, maybe in the other series, but I need to say it again. You are not your gender. We're talking about identity here. You are not your gender. You are not your race. I know that's controversial. You are not your disability or your ability. That is not your identity. You are not your age. You are not your social strata. You are not your IQ. You are not your job. You are not your, how much money you have. You are not any of these things. 
Strip it all down. You are one of two things. Every person in this room, everyone watching on the live stream right now, you are one of two things. You are a child of God or you are not. And that is it. You decide now where you line up, but that is your eternal identity. Let there be no more confusion about that. The world complicates this. All of those categories that I talked about, those are all the world's creations to keep us divided. And the world does that for its own devious purposes. It is the world that has created all of the divisions. You are a child of God or you are not. And it's no more complicated than that. Let us hear the word of God here today. Finally this, one more. Whether I realize it or not, the deepest longing of my heart is to be with God, exchanging, exchanging sin and death for life. Verse 8. Verse 8 seems almost out of place here because it seems to go back. Like I take verse 8 and I want to take it and put it back in chapter 19 where it belongs. Because here we are in the first seven verses just enjoying the bliss of what God is going to do for those who are His. And then we get this verse, this interruption that takes us back again to this matter of those who don't believe. Well, that's already been taken care of. That's two chapters old. But then I remember, the book of Revelation is not a linear, not a chronology of end times events where I'm supposed to figure out where everything falls in the timeline. Revelation is a series of apocalyptic visions given to a certain set of readers in the first century and, and, and also to us to read and be convinced of these truths. And so even as the revelation is rolling out to John, the Holy Spirit is, is giving this to him because this is one more reminder maybe in this very moment, to unbelievers who are watching on the live stream or here in the room, this is one more appeal to them. The mission of Revelation is to get as many people as possible not to go through the judgment. And so that's why verse 8 is here. It's another reminder. Look at how awesome this is when God fulfills all this stuff, but some of you aren't there yet. It's a warning in an appeal to those who have not yet repented and turned to Christ for their hope. So God says it again. As for the cowardly, verse 8, as for the cowardly, these stand in contrast to those who have conquered. The believers are conquerors. These are the cowardly. The faithless who refuse to believe, the detestable who do shameful things, the murderers who persecuted believers, the sexually immoral who've dove in headlong into the culture, the sorcerers and idolaters who have given themselves over to false religion, all the liars who have rejected the truth of God's word. In fact, this serves as a summary for all of the sin that we've seen throughout the book of Revelation, and it's a shot across the bow at anyone who still identifies with this list. Those who will fail to find life, but will be lost to their sin and condemned to die not once but twice. Their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death, spiritual death, 
or eternal separation from God. This is the absence of God. That's, that, in essence, is the best definition of hell. Hell is the absence of God. It's not an unimaginable horror because of the metaphors that we have been given to understand it, fire and darkness. These are images that help us to understand the horror of what this is. But the real unimaginable horror of hell is that it is a place devoid of God's common grace and all the benefits that come with that. But it can be exchanged. That destiny can be exchanged for eternal life in Christ. So seven exchanges. Will you make each one of these exchanges in your own life? In fact, Christian, does your life currently reflect these exchanges? Because this is the only way to receive and to enjoy everything that God has intended for us. This is the only way. This is the only way for us to find relief from this decaying world. Make the exchange in your own life.